Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Sampos. On today's podcast, what is Christianity's strongest argument? Ken will discuss that question on this podcast as we begin a series on original sin. And Ken, uh, as is often the case, you find yourselves yourself in encounters with people online, and some of those topics uh, that are raised there often make it to the podcast. So uh, we're looking forward to this one. That's exactly right. I, um, I don't always know what to think of social media, but it does give me some content that I can, yeah. can use. So yeah, this is, a, I think, a very important topic. And uh, I want to begin by talking about an article that I came across by a prominent atheist who uh, essentially said Christianity's best argument is original sin. So my ears went up when I read that. Yeah. All right. Well, this, uh, as, as we mentioned, this is going to be a series. But first, you want to talk about this article and this atheist. Um, maybe uh, you can tell us who he is and how this all came about. Yeah, I uh, I first came across Dr. Keith Parsons. Um, let me give you a little bio on him first. Professor of philosophy at the University of Houston at Clear Lake, which is in Houston, Texas. I don't know if he's still professor or emeritus, but he's been there a long time. Very well educated, two doctorates, one in philosophy, the other in the history and philosophy of science. And on Amazon, he has about six or eight books in various fields that I think our listeners would find interesting. Two books that are available online, Why I Am Not a Christian, uh, published by Free Thought, Free Thought Press, and then God and the Burden of Proof, uh, Prometheus uh, book. So those are two books that are very relevant to the question of God, his existence, uh, and, and an interaction with um, Christian theism. I do want to say how I came across uh, Dr. Keith Parsons. Um, years ago, Joe, uh, back in 1993, a book came out entitled, Does God Exist? Subtitle, The Debate Between Theists and Atheists. And the book is actually taken from a debate that was done between J.P. Moreland, a Christian theist, philosopher, and Kai Nielsen, who is an atheist. And then uh, there were contributions, uh, you know, reacting to the debate from people like Peter Kraft, Anthony Flew, another longtime atheist who uh, kind of became a deist, I think, at the end of his life, but also uh, William Lane Craig, Dallas Willard, and Keith Parsons. And uh, I remember reading through it and kind of digesting it, and I thought Parsons is a is a sharp cookie. He's careful and. Uh, I enjoyed that kind of interaction because I could hear not only the arguments I was sympathetic to because J.P. Moreland's had a has had an influence on me, but uh, to hear how a thoughtful critic would respond. Um, and so I've uh, I've followed Keith Parsons, and I'll say one more thing about this. Um, I think probably the best Christian apologist maybe alive today is probably William Lane Craig. I don't always agree with Dr. Craig about theological and some philosophical issues, but he's very capable. Um, uh, Bill also has two doctorates, one in theology and in philosophy. And 
I've watched him for many years. He's debated many prominent atheists um, and various other people as well. Uh, and Bill almost always wins his debates. He's very skilled, um, conducts him, I, I think, you know, in a, in a very thoughtful and winsome manner. Well, uh, Bill Craig and Keith Parsons debated a number of years ago, and I remember listening to that debate very carefully. And I would actually say that it may have been a draw. And if there was a winner, it may have been Keith Parsons. Hmm. Um, Dr. Parsons, uh, he's very good at his rhetoric and he has lots of criticisms about historic Christianity, uh, but he could also marshal an argument. And so he is a very thoughtful atheist. And uh, I wanna make sure to, uh, you know, to acknowledge uh, Dr. Parsons is not sympathetic to Christianity. In fact, in this article, uh, which is uh, again entitled The Strongest Argument for Christianity, uh, you can go on uh, the, the secular outpost. You could just type in uh, Keith Parsons, and there is an S at the end of his name, The Strongest Argument for Christianity. And it was written, Joe, in 2009. So this is not a new article. But I just came across it uh, largely by accident a couple weeks ago. Hmm. Anyway, this is what uh, Parsons says briefly. He says, uh, I think the arguments for the existence of God, whether considered individually or cumulatively, are totally worthless. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement. He goes on to say, anyone, as anyone can tell from reading my candid little tome, why I'm not a Christian, available in the modern library of the secular web, I regard Christian apologetics as a travesty, a farrago of bad history, inept biblical scholarship, and rampant illogic. So I want to make the statement very clearly that uh, Keith Parsons is, is not sympathetic to Christianity. Mm -hmm. But as I read this article about original sin, um, he understands, I think, some of the uh, insights of, of what historic Christianity has to say about this topic. And I think probably he's going to, he would disagree with me. I think that's a major concession and I think it supports the Christian worldview. Mm. Now let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. Um, uh, I, I'd like to read just a couple select uh, sections from Dr. Parsons, um, he goes on to say this, he says a central, and I'm quoting, a central indispensable doctrine of Christianity has always been the inherent rottenness of human beings. That's kind of an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. Because uh, more formally, this doctrine of original sin, this is the doctrine of original sin. Of course, the doctrine of original sin was originally construed by Augustine, as a taint passed on biologically from parent to child, starting with Adam and Eve. As a theory of the genetics of sinfulness, the doctrine has always understandably elicited derisive howls from unbelievers. When removed from its pseudo-biological garb, however, the idea is quite profound. Hmm. And then he says this, um, he says, Augustine held that before the fall, Humans could choose to sin or not sin. Since the fall, uh, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, right? Um, since the fall, we have lost the power to refrain from sin. 
and wallowed in bondage to concupiscence, by which Augustine meant all evil desired, not merely the sexual sort. The Reformed tradition called the post-fall human state one of total depravity, quote unquote, by which they did not mean that humans are incapable of any good, but that every aspect of human nature and human life has been infected by sin. I think he understands original sin. Hmm. I think that Keith Parsons has looked at this issue and and he's got it he's got it right. And um, so I think this is a major concession. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about in these four programs. I think that Christianity has real explanatory power when it comes to uh, our everyday lives. And and Joe, you remember my book, A World of Difference. I know you were working here when I was just writing that book. I think you were involved in some of the editing of it. But in A World of Difference, I have nine tests of a worldview. Um, two of them... I think relate to this very issue. What one is kind of a pragmatic test. You know, does is your worldview practical? Does it does it give you a sense of workability? And then another test there is the existential test. You know, where do we find meaning and purpose in the life in which we live? I think the doctrine of original sin is very practical. And I think it relates to the to the human condition. So um, again, just a bit more quote from Dr. Parsons because I I appreciate what he has to say. He says, "Quote the doctrine of original sin is quite ferocious and uncompromising. Of course, the gentler souls, such as liberal Protestants and humanists, have always been appalled by it. Surely, it seems far too gloomy and pessimistic." to view humans in general in terms of total depravity. And then he says, aren't the doctrines of original sin and total depravity simply thinly guised misanthropy? At one time, I would have answered the last question with a resounding yes. Actually, I might still answer the question in the affirmative. But what has changed is that I increasingly regard misanthropy as a rational view. This is how he closes the article. He says, so the Christian depiction of the human condition seems to be spot on. This is one thing Christianity gets exactly right. There is something deeply and, and seemingly irredeemably wrong with us. We stain everything we touch. Even the citadel of reason is breached. And his last comment, so chalk one up big for Christianity. I think that that's a... That's a powerful statement by somebody um, who obviously appreciates um, and all and by appreciation, he understands Christianity. He mm -hmm. doesn't think it's true. He doesn't think God exists, but I think that's a very powerful statement. And Joe, I think that um, Christendom shouldn't give up original sin. Now, of course, I want to mention as we go along, there are there's an entire branch of Christianity known as Eastern Orthodoxy. We could also include Oriental Orthodoxy, which be, would be the Coptic variety. They reject original sin, but it's it's really they reject that we're guilty in Adam. 
Uh, but there are evangelicals who, are re who reject original sin. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine just recently say, you know, that original sin seems to destroy libertarian freedom. Therefore, I want to reject it. So I think it would be good to talk about these issues, define original sin. But I'd like to hear you are a Reformed Christian, Joe. What do you think about some of these comments made by Keith Parsons? Well, as as you mentioned, uh, he gets it right. And that's one of the things that uh, you often look for in somebody who doesn't hold your view. And you, you talk about it all the time on this podcast. Make sure you get your opponent's position right before you critique it. Can you even defend that view? And it kind of sounds like he's doing that. He's, he's understanding it well enough to defend it, although he rejects it. So we as Christians look at it and read or listen to the quotes that you attributed to him and say, wow, that's that's pretty good for coming from an atheist. So uh, I guess that would be something that uh, I think is pretty cool. Uh, the other thing as a Reformed Christian is uh, this doctrine, I see it affirmed every day in my own life. So no argument on my part. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean... I mean, the reality of it is that um, I think when we look in the mirror, even on our best days, we see that, you know, um, uh, there's kind of a disorderedness in our life. So I thought we would talk a little bit about the definition of sin, and then we can kind of uh, develop uh, various issues in terms of the explanatory power. And then that'll set us up, I think, well for uh, show number two. So here is the definition of original sin. Um, the word original sin, the two words original sin, they're not used in the Bible. Um, I think it is right that probably Augustine coined original sin as, a, as an expression. And anybody who's listened to this program knows about St. Augustine, uh, born 354, died 430. I don't think it's hyperbole, Joe, to say that Augustine may be the most influential theologian outside of the Bible. Now, um, I want to qualify that. I think Augustine is the bridge between Western Christendom. That is, I think Augustine's influence on Catholicism, it's probably as strong even on Protestants. But Augustine's not terribly popular in Eastern Christendom. And interestingly enough, because they think he's far too pessimistic about the human condition, and they're not very appreciative of his kind of predestinarian ideas. So uh, original sin. Now, uh, one volume I, I love very much, it's called Handbook of Basic Bible Texts by John Jefferson Davis, longtime Presbyterian at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, that book is a great book because it uh, takes the categories of systematic theology and then lists the key doctrinal passages under those particular categories. So I like to read it because sometimes I want to read the Bible systematically. I want to I want to read the Bible doctrinally. And then other times when I write, I want to know, well, where are the what are the key passages? Well, here's what Davis says about original sin. He says that uh, it, it, it means the sinfulness, guilt, and susceptibility of, to death inherited by all human beings, Christ accepted from Adam. 
So three things come out of original sin. It was the sin of Adam and Eve. Um, and that sin was that sin nature was then passed off to humans. And it not only means that we have a, a fallen or broken or moral problem, a deep-seated moral problem, but we also die and that we're guilty in Adam, that Adam was like a federal representative. Now, notice he says, the sinfulness, guilt, and susceptibility to death inherited by all human beings, Christ accepted from Adam. Our Roman Catholic friends, however, are going to say there's another exception, not just Christ. They believe that Mary was conceived without the taint of original sin. So that's an area of uh, dispute that comes out in this issue. Um, my colleague, uh, when I worked at the Christian Research Institute a long time ago, was Elliot Miller, and we have a little book entitled The Cult of the Virgin. It's long been out of print, but it's available uh, on Amazon. And that talks about Catholics and Protestants on Mariology. Um, I, I address things like the apparitions of Mary, but that's one point. So when you say you believe in original sin, it means that somehow Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, Genesis 3, and we'll have a, a program in this series where we'll look at all of the major passages that apply to this. And obviously, it all begins there in Genesis 3. But Adam and Eve, uh, they were told you can eat from all of the trees in the garden, but there's one tree you're forbidden to eat from, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Adam and Eve nevertheless decided uh, that they would eat the forbidden fruit and uh, they were separated from God. And you can read about that in Genesis 3, and we'll come back to it later. But again, three elements that the nature we receive from Adam uh, is a morally corrupt nature. It means that there is a flaw, a moral flaw within us, that we're incapable of uh, uh, stopping sinning. It, it doesn't mean that tonight, you know, somebody's going to go home and rob a bank or, you know, do something like that. But it means that when you really reflect upon your life, there are sins that are very difficult to, to get away from. And here, I'll just mention a couple of them. How about selfishness? How about narcissism? Um, a, another one, envy, pride, uh, lust. These are uh, serious sins that uh, in my own personal experience and in my reading of everybody I could get my hands on who has written about this topic, human beings have an inability to step outside that. Now, I'm not in any way denying that the Holy Spirit doesn't transform us. I'm not the person I once was, but I am still a person who has to battle that sin nature. And I think the Apostle Paul talks about it. Now, so we have a sin nature, a morally corrupt nature. We die, uh, and we're guilty in Adam. Now, that's the that's the real rub of difficulty. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians disagree with that. I think most of, and and I'm open to correction here, but I think I'm right that much of what I would call, or what is called, the Radical Reformation 
uh, which is different than the Magisterial Reformation. The Magisterial Reformation would have been the four um, Protestant Christian traditions, uh, Lutheran, uh, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist. That would be the Magisterial Reformation. Uh, the Radical Reformation, uh, you would have groups that come later who are Take a, take a much more individual type of Christianity. So some evangelicals, some evangelicals come from Lutheran or Reformed or Baptist or Anglican backgrounds, but some come from other churches where they just say, I just don't think we're guilty in Adam. Now, I want to say a lot about that, but I want to say something right at the top, Joe. I think that original sin, I think that salvation in Christ trades on the idea of original sin. Now, I'm not going to go into it in a lot of detail, but I'll say this. Uh, if you can't, if God cannot justly uh, judge us for what Adam did, then I would propose that God can neither uh, justly judge Christ for what we did. And I think that plays out in Romans chapter 5, very, very powerfully. So Jesus is also the second Adam. He redoes all the things that Adam undid, if you will. And so this, this collectivity idea is a, is a big one. Here's another uh, definition. I like theopedia.com. Uh, it's a nice evangelical theological uh, web page, and it defines original sin this way. It says, the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall, such that all of humanity is ethically debilitated, and people are powerless to rehabilitate themselves unless rescued by God. Well, I think that's there's some really helpfulness that there is a debilitation what is it about human beings that are that have this debilitation? And Joe, you know from our discussions and uh, editing some of my blog articles, uh, a lot of people deny this. Muslims, this is the religion of Islam, second largest religion in the world, 1.8 to maybe 2 billion Muslims in the world. They deny original sin. Not only do they deny original sin, they believe people are born good. Now, if I can be candid, and, and again, I don't like to, uh, I, you know, I like to be respectful of everybody's beliefs, but you can be respectful and disagree. When I look at Islam's history, I think if any religion should believe in original sin, it should be Islam. Mm. They have... Uh, a very difficult history when it comes to violence. The people who were said to be Muhammad's successors, many of them were murdered. So Islam is a fighting religion, uh, and yet they say people are born, uh, they're born good. Now, let me develop it a bit more here, and now I'm going to go back to St. Augustine. And I do want to say something about um, Christendom here. And the point I want to say is, I think for evangelicals who say, look, I got the Bible, I've got the Old and New Testament, I've got God's word, why would I want to read about people, Catholic thinkers like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas? Uh, or why would I want to read about 
you know, the Cappadocian fathers in the in Eastern Christendom, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa. Why do I want to read all those old dusty writers? Or even Protestants like Luther and Calvin and Cramner. Why would I want to bother reading all those? I've got God's word. Well, what I would say is that uh, by reading these people in the Eastern Church, in the Western Church, and the Reformers, you're going to get some of the, the brightest, most gifted Bible teachers in the history of the world. Uh, these, these men uh, were brilliant. Uh, they loved Christ. And I think that uh, our, our Christianity or our experience within Christendom uh, is going to be far less enriched without somebody like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Peter Kreeft, who is a Catholic philosopher, says he thinks those are the two greatest Christian minds who have ever lived. Well, I would say something similar about the Cappadocian fathers. I would say something about similar about Luther, Calvin, and Cramner. Now, do they have feet of clay? Every single one of them do. Uh, they all have, they struggle with besetting sins. Uh, Luther and Calvin probably really struggled with anger. Uh, it's said of Calvin that there were times where if you disagreed with him, he kind of immediately thought you were disagreeing with God. That's not a fault that's exclusively reserved for Calvin. There are many of us who kind of come away that, with that. But um, I really do think um, that if, and, and I never want to say just the Bible, but I think that God's word in historic Christianity has come down to us through the church. And, you know, to take Calvin once again, and again, he's very controversial, and people people who don't know a lot about him think that he invented predestination in the laboratory there in Geneva. That's a joke. Uh, Calvin's view of predestination is not that different from Luther, not that different from Augustine or Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, so he's he didn't invent anything. Uh, he's deriving it from scripture. And I, I think the thing that I like most about Calvin is his biblical commentaries. I mean, he is, he wrote a, a commentary of every book of the New Testament, but the book of Revelation. He said, I don't understand it. Wow, what a refreshing comment. Um, but Calvin's commentaries, I mean, they, they've stood the test of time. So when we talk about somebody like St. Augustine, I think the church in the East missed Augustine and Aquinas. I think the church in the West missed the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and the two Gregories. Um, I think the Catholic church missed Luther and Calvin and Cramner. And I think that uh, it's obviously important that we interpret the Bible in its, on its own ground, that we learn to derive the meaning of Scripture, that we, uh, we don't rely too, uh, inappropriately on tradition. But, uh, Joe, I, I think that Christendom, all the branches have strengths and weaknesses, and they can learn from each other. And I think one area the Eastern Church could learn is from St. Augustine's original sin. 
And by the way, I'm willing to say that about evangelicalism because I'm I'm willing to say it about myself. I think sin is a bigger problem than most of us realize. The good news is Christ is a much greater savior than any of us realize. Mm-hmm. And that that issue of sin, I mean, I mean, I have a tendency, and I wonder, Joe, if you have this tendency and if our listeners have this tendency. I have this tendency to uh, minimize my own faults and maximize the faults of others. That That is just something that is part of me. I also, um, I also struggle with self-obsession. That is, it's hard for me to step outside myself. And sometimes it's really important to step outside yourself so that you can care about your neighbor. So these, these faults, you know, the Eastern Church says, for example, that uh, we have a proclivity to sin. I think that's true, but I don't think it's strong enough. It's more than a proclivity. I think we have a sin nature. Now, again, these are going to be disputed, but um, let me touch on Augustine, then I want to come back to you and have you give me some input here. One of St. Augustine's analogies for thinking about the sinful human condition is that sin is like a hereditary disease that has been passed down from one generation to the next. This illness has caused human beings to faithfully and irrationally settle for finite temporal goods over infinite eternal goods. Augustine called this malady uh, disordered affections or love. So the noetic effects of the fall, how sin negatively impacts the human mind and intellect, can be viewed analogously to a type of mental illness. Now, there's a lot there, but a couple ideas. Augustine's thinking is this is a congenital illness. This is like a hereditary disease. He didn't know anything about heredity, so to speak, that modern science has revealed modern medicine. But the idea that there has been this sin nature that we have indeed passed on, and that an important part of it has to do with, instead of appreciating uh, food and money and uh, sex and recognizing those as good gifts from God, rather we focus our whole life on those things. And um, Peter Kraft, a Catholic philosopher, he says that that's kind of like a mental illness. Joe, I think cognitive biases uh, reflect original sin. I, I think our thinking has been affected negatively. But let me stop there. I wonder if you have some thoughts about these issues as we've defined original sin. Yeah, well, I'd like to get your feedback on a comment here. Since you just brought up Augustine's thinking about original sin in light of, uh, of what it does to us, it's like a, a mental illness. Um, I, I want to hear what you'd say on how to differentiate that, uh, because I was watching something on TV recently, uh, a kind of a, a documentary on serial killers. Yeah. And decades ago, we had a number of them killing people at the same time. Anyway, I was, I was watching it in light of uh, the sin of humanity, even before you brought up the topic uh, for the podcast. 
And I thought uh, the people on there were doing a good job of explaining original sin without using any Christian categories whatsoever. And they were ruling out uh, mental illness. That is, you know, these were like psychologists and neurologists. They're saying these killers, you know, planned these very carefully and they were involved in society. They were working jobs. People didn't know about this other part of them. These were not like crimes of passion or or the the crimes of somebody who didn't know what they were doing. They were very carefully planned out. So I just thought that uh, that was uh, extraordinary and they didn't attribute it to mental illness. So this is where I want you to, to comment and get your question. Um, when people hear that, yeah. and yet they hear the, the view of Augustine, what type of mental illness are we talking about then? Yeah, no, very good. Uh, I think what Peter Kraft means when he uses uh, a type of mental illness, he's he's using an analogy. He's you know, is it is it like a hereditary nature that we pass on? Is it a congenital uh, problem that's passed on to people uh, generation by generation? Is it a type of disorientation? And I, I think what Kraft means by it is it's crazy to pick a finite good over an infinite good. It's crazy to settle for the lesser good when you can have the greater good. So he's kind of using it in the sense that, man, this has kind of warped our thinking. Now, you're bringing in a very important point, and that is uh, psychology and psychiatry, you know, has defined people that are uh, sociopaths or psychopaths, where they are deeply mentally ill. Uh, some of them are very dangerous, but there is also the delineation, and I, I'm glad that program did it. Uh, I've talked with some psychiatrists who've said, look, there are there are serial killers out there and they're not mentally ill. They are evil. Um, I remember talking with Mark Perez, uh, the COO of RTB, who spent 36 years in law enforcement, retired as a deputy chief uh, for the Los Angeles Police Department. He said that in his experience, there were people that are so dangerous uh, that society has to be protected from them. Um, I think the reality is that you don't have to be psychologically ill to explain some of the great evils of, of the world. The Holocaust, I don't think that the Nazis were mentally ill. Um, I think they were evil. Uh, human trafficking. I mean, the idea that there are people out there who have uh, I'm sure if they were exposed, they would be people who live high in society. They probably have, some of them have good education. They they have lots of qu good qualities. Maybe they're very cultured people. But Joe, there are people who kidnap uh, young boys and girls and sell them into a life of slavery. Um, that to me seems evil. And I think that it's important to make that distinction you know, there, there are people who struggle with mental illness, uh, and it's of epidemic proportion. I think it's part of the homelessness issue that we deal with. Uh, it is also part of how does society come to grips with people who suffer uh, from mental illness. But yes, I, I think there's a difference. And, and by the way, as part of that article by 
uh, Dr. Parsons, he makes the point, he makes that very point that during World War II, and there's another thing I like about him, he's a student of World War II, he said, you know, um, the Nazis would regularly, uh, particularly in the Eastern Front, if somebody killed one of their leaders, like Reinhard Heydrich was assassinated uh, by two agents um, uh, on the Allied side, well, Hitler would have go to a whole city and maybe murder 10,000 people for every one. And Joe, this was common occurrence. I mean, in July of 1944, it's estimated by the commandant, a man named uh, Hearst at uh, Auschwitz, that the Nazis were murdering 12,000 Jews a day. Mm. So I think that uh, Parsons is exactly right. There's something fundamentally flawed about human beings. Again, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. Uh, and when Reformed and Lutheran authors say we suffer from a total depravity, it doesn't mean we're all Adolf Hitlers or all Ted Bundys or anything like that. It means that sin has impacted the entire person. And I think that's lived out every single day of our life. I, I think that's something we, we encounter in our life. And I think it should also recognize that when you encounter people who are Christians, they are inevitably going to have certain hypocrisy. Now again, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to defend uh, you know when Christians do things that are wrong. Uh, I am saying, however, that the Christian worldview says that the fallen condition is worse than most of us realize. And uh, the reason we have to have a high view of grace is because we have a high view of sin. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's spend a little time, Joe, talking about what I think is the import of somebody like Parsons talking about original sin. I mean, you and I, we, we hear it every day. Uh, skeptics will say, you know, the Bible's filled with contradictions and error. How can you trust it? How can you take it as being truthful? Well, one of the ways that I respond to that is I say, I think there is a part of the, the biblical teaching that's confirmed every day in a person's life. And that's the doctrine of original sin. I, I think it, it explains the human condition. Uh, and in fact, think of this, original sin applies to all people at all times, everywhere, in every class. Um, it, it, it's a sign of possessing a, a fallen nature and is extremely narcissistic in tendency. Now, again, our Catholic friends are going to say, well, Mary was conceived without the taint of original sin. I don't believe that's correct. But I think the reality is that this is something we see confirmed every single day of our lives. And I even want to say this, um, Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 are very important parts of the Apostle Paul's explanation of the human condition according to what God has revealed. And, and Paul says things like, all men... All women, everybody, they see, understand, and know that there is a God. 
And the natural tendency, apart from saving grace, is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they've been made in the image of God. They have a nature that's different from the animals. Uh, it's it's uh, human exceptionalism is the way we might describe it in a scientific context. We are all recipients of common grace. Uh, we get the sunshine and the rain, whether you're a believer or non-believer. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. In fact, the Hebrew term there, Joe, is the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God. It's perpetual. It's unending. And then Romans 1, we have a conscience. Um, we know that certain things are wrong. And yet this suppression of uh, the truth. Now, of course, I'm going to say something that I'm sure Professor Parsons would not agree with and would want to push back on. But I want to say it anyway. And, and that is, I believe that a state of atheism where you say, well, there's no God. I think that that's the effect of original sin. I think there is a tendency in all of us to want to avoid uh, moral responsibility. Now, again, I know that that sounds very offensive to somebody who is not a Christian, but I think the reality is that things like cognitive biases and a, and a major argument that atheists use today is the hiddenness of God. That, uh, you know, leading atheist philosophers will say th something like this, that, look, I'm, I'm open to God, but I don't see any evidence for God. God hasn't made himself known to me. So it's just crickets. Um, I'm open. Uh, well, I would bring us back to this, this fallen humanness. How open are we really? How open are we really? And, and is it possible that sin um, can deceive us? I mean, sin... The Bible talks a lot about sin. Most of the time it talks about sin in terms of breaking the commandments. And we're pretty good at that, uh, particularly the 10 in uh, the book of uh, the law, the Torah given by Moses. Um, but it also says that we miss the mark. And it also says that we suppress, we are blind. And all of us have had this common experience where you can see flaws in other people, and you're ju it's just absent for you. Well, um, could it be that our cognitive biases is part of this original sin, and that it takes the grace of God to allow you to be able to see yourself as you really are? Now, I didn't come to Christianity, uh, Joe. I, both you and I were raised Catholics. Your family might have been more devout than mine. I'm not quite sure, but um, I believed in God and I believed that Jesus was the Son of God to the degree that I understood that idea. But if you if you came over and badmouthed Catholicism or spoke badly about Jesus, I might pick a fight with you. But um, when I began to take Christianity seriously as a young college student, I didn't come directly based on an argument. When I really began to understand doctrines like the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection, I had a sense of need. I knew I was imperfect, and I knew 
that I I needed the meaning and purpose and significance that Jesus Christ offered. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you life. Um, I wanted it. And so I think Christianity has this powerful element. And, you know, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk. Of, I mean, think of the think of the cultural context, the milieu that we live in. You know, we don't like dogmatic people. We don't like people who talk negatively. We don't like disagreeable people. But the Bible, when it talks about sin, it's an equal opportunity employer. It applies to everybody. I don't think that um, I, I I don't think that uh, prejudice racially or prejudice with regard with with regard to uh, sex. So the battles between men and women, the battles between the racial minorities. I think that that is due to original sin. Um, you know, it, it, but we want to say no. It it's due it's due to race, it's due to gender, it's due to class. I think the Bible brings it even more fundamentally. All of those issues are human issues. We all struggle with that. The history of our race involves prejudice. It involves looking down on other people. Um, and therefore, I think I think the Bible has real explanatory power. Comments from you? Uh, just a, a question for you. Uh, someone might say, boy, it sure sounds like you're down on human beings. <laughs> well, you didn't talk about Genesis 1 uh, because you're your focus is on original sin, but uh, maybe just say something along the lines of uh, what Blaise Pascal said about human greatness and wretchedness. We're created in the image of God, that God pronounced his creation good in Genesis 1. Our fall comes in Genesis 3. So I just wanted to get you to comment on that. Yeah, very good. Remember, one way of thinking about the Christian worldview or the biblical worldview is Think of four successive events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Part of the creation, uh, unlike the Gnostic heresy that says matter is evil and spirit is good, the Bible says that the world God made was good. And then it says something very specific in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Human beings are made in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 2, 7, God takes the dust of the ground. Stardust, as Dave Rockstad would say, takes the dust of the ground, the spirit breathes into it the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. Humans have inherent dignity and moral worth because of this theological doctrine called creation. And so Blaise Pascal comes along in the 17th century, who is this brilliant scientist, one of the founders of science. He was a physicist a mathematician, a logician. Um, Pascal said, human beings are this unusual enigma, this riddle. At one time, they're great, and yet at the same time, they're wretched. They're great in that humans can invent the, the natural sciences. Humans can engage in great acts of philanthropy, um, 
I mean, just as there were people murdering Jews, there were also people there trying to hide them and protect them. Um, you know, uh, countries give billions of dollars to try to clothe and feed other individuals. So you're exactly right. The Christian, uh, you know, without the Imago Dei and without the value and dignity of human beings, it would be to total mess. But part of that explanatory power, as you've rightly stated, is that this goodness and wretchedness, this greatness and wretchedness, uh, and it's there. Uh, and and it's part of this this explanatory model. And so, again, the big issues, creation, then the fall, then redemption, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he takes on a human nature, and Jesus undoes all the things that the first Adam undid. So Jesus, according to Paul, is the second Adam, and he keeps the commandments perfectly. Uh, he never misses the mark. He's never self-deceived. I think when you look at the Gospels, you discover Jesus has remarkable abilities when it comes to things like rhetoric and argumentation. He he never, you know, goes off on a tangent. Uh, he is, you know, and, and and by the way, he is encountering some of the brightest minds that the Hebrew community could offer. These, these men were trained in God's word and trained in thinking. And Jesus comes along with no training. He's a carpenter, no formal training, but he's 12 years old and he is perplexing the minds of Israel's finest thinkers. And in his death, he sets it right. Um, he Jesus dies for original sin. He his sin washes, his death washes our sin away. And so, you know, this is that, this is that Christian gospel. But again, if you don't like, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but if you don't like the idea that God holds you accountable in Adam, if you don't like this collective identity, then what are you going to do when the gospel comes along and says, well, uh, all of the sins you committed they're put on the account of Christ. And his punishment is going to take away your sins. I think that I think that the atonement, in some sense, trades on this idea of, of original sin. And by the way, I think that it also speaks powerfully, Joe, to our culture in this sense. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate these days. You know, can human beings get along with each other? You know. People who have white skin, black skin, yellow skin, red skin, brown skin. You know, how are we going to sort all this out? Men and women. Then there are men who think they're women. There are women who think they're men. I think the Bible has something foundational to say. It says human beings are broken. They're fallen. And it's and it's the whole race. And, and this is why RTB, I think, argues so strongly for the idea of a historical Adam. I think without a historical Adam, the biblical worldview doesn't make sense. Mm. But we're collectively guilty. Racism is not just a white person's problem. It's a human problem. And it came to us in Adam. And so, uh, you know, the problem is not skin, it's sin. 
And the answer is not race, it's grace. That's <laughs> that's that powerful statement that I think is remarkable. And, you know, that's what I would want to say to uh, someone like Professor Parsons, uh, who I think has insightfully got this. But, you know, um, I think it has real explanatory power. I think, I think, I think the founding fathers of America recognized it. They had checks and balances. Why? Because, you know, human nature, got to watch it. I mean, there's a lot of good about it. And, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson says, yeah, uh, you know, all human beings are created equal. Um, and yet there's the checks and balances, got to watch them. You know, you got to have a good... Um, uh, journalistic base so they can question, speak truth to power. All of these kinds of things, I think, illustrate that um, Christianity is very practical. The Bible is very practical. Every single day, we struggle with our, with our human condition. And God has provided an antidote. God has provided a practical solution to that problem. And thus, uh, slavery is overcome in many parts of the world by the very people who believe human beings are made in God's image. Um, while the Romans and the Greeks don't think that children have any rights or women don't have any rights or slaves don't have any rights, Christians come along and say, what we were taught in the Jewish scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, we proclaim to you that all people are made in the image of God. And it was so successful, Joe, the two largest people groups to become Christian were slaves and women. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman world, they had no rights. They see this Jesus and they say, I want that. And I, I would say the same thing. Uh, here's where I'm going to take exception with Professor Parsons. When I read the Gospels, I think to myself, nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody, nobody acts like this man. Um, he does seem to be the son of God. I would expect that something miraculous would happen uh, after his death. And it did. There's good historical evidence for the resurrection. So this idea of explanatory power, uh, I, I think part of accepting a worldview, and I'm not saying these are the major tests. I think we want to look at coherence. I think we want to look at any number of issues. And if the Trinity really is a contradiction, then it's false and we shouldn't accept it. I don't think it is a contradiction. It's a mystery. Uh, we can't fully fathom it, but I still think we can make logical sense of it. But these, these tests about pragmatism, um, the gospel does work. I have met many people who were deeply addicted to drugs, who were involved in very reckless behavior, and the Lord turned their life around. Um, Christianity, God's grace, does work in people's lives. I mean, think of St. Paul, you know, Saul of Tarsus, anti-Christian, um, you know, thinks that it's, it's justifiable to to kill Christians. Why? Because they're bringing a heresy. They're teaching Jesus is God. They're actually worshiping a man as if he's God. The spirit comes upon him, 
changes his life. And I would say no matter how great Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Cramner and Basil the Great and the Gregories and Chrysostom and name anybody you want, nobody has the influence uh, in Christendom like this lowly rabbi whose name was Saul, who becomes Paul. So there are remarkable things. I remember being a kid in the neighborhood. I see these trucks driving around, St. Vincent de Paul, Salvation Army. I see these people who are dedicated to, to giving to try to help people. So, you know, and, and this existential thing of... Uh, I'm looking for meaning and purpose and significance. I'm yearning. I'm desiring. This life can't be all there is. I think what I would say to Professor Parsons is I think he's exactly right, but I think he's underestimated the concession he has made about the importance of original sin. Great stuff, Ken. Appreciate your thoughts on this topic. We're going to talk about it some more, uh, three more podcasts on original sin. You're going to get into some more of what the Bible has to say, uh, worldview tests, and uh, some objections that you've received. So we can look forward to that in upcoming podcasts. I uh, want to mention, I, I think you said it was a world of difference where you talk about this, Ken. Is that correct? Two, two books, um, A World of Difference, I talk about the worldview of human beings. And then in Seven Truths That Changed the World, I talk about uh, this issue of being created in God's image, but also being fallen and then redemption. So both of those books, I spend a lot of time talking about this topic. All right. Be sure and get those books if you don't have them already. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get Clear Thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.